so glad that y'all are here this morning. Typically, I've been trying to teach on Paul as a legal case study, a bizarre little approach to Paul. But in anticipation of trying to get the next lesson ready, sometimes I'm falling back uh, to give me more prep time on these Torah devotionals. So that's what we've done today. We're going through the Torah devotional, a book that I'm writing in right now, and, and a chance to kind of share and express some of that with you. So I'm glad you're here. If you're brand new, you haven't been here before, you don't have to have any background for this class today, but hopefully it'll be of some use to you. It's divided into little portions, so you can sleep through some of the portions, and that's fine. Someone sitting next to you will wake you up when the next portion comes in, and just enjoy the ones that you want to enjoy, and the rest of them fine. Now, to do this, I've got a couple of things where I want to make sure we try to learn something that we may not be as familiar with. So we're going to start and we're going to talk first about the Tanakh. The Tanakh. Say it. Tanakh. Very good. That is the Hebrew Bible. Now the Hebrew Bible is what we would normally call the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible doesn't typically have what we would call the New Testament, the Christian writings, though as Christians we view the entire Bible, Old and New Testament, as God's word or message for humanity. But the Tanakh comes from three different letters in that word, T, N, and the single Hebrew letter uh, which we pronounce as a K-H sound. And so the Tanakh gets that name from the three different groupings of Old Testament scriptures. Remember, books did not become prominent until the second century, really. Before that, writings were basically a, a sheet of parchment or a few pieces of parchment that were sewn together or a scroll. Oh, you'd find writings in London recently. They were digging out for something and they found some old Roman tablets, which would be a wooden tablet. And they'd put a, a kind of a paraffin wax on it and write on the paraffin wax. That's kind of like a erasable paper. But somebody wrote so hard that it made an impression. You could read the Latin words on the wood itself behind the paraffin. But generally, for most writings... And certainly for the Hebrew Scriptures, they weren't put in a book initially. They were a whole bunch of scrolls. And the scrolls were collected into three different divisions. So you had the Torah. The Torah is, that's a Hebrew word, it means law. So there were a group of scrolls that were called the law books, the Torah. They are the books that we call Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The first five books of the Old Testament, or some people call them the, the books of Moses. Some people call them the Pentateuch, off of the Greek word penta, which means five. Uh, the five books of the law, the Pentateuch. Um, so you've got the five books of the Torah, that is the Old Testament law. When Jesus said, the law and the prophets talk about me, Jesus would have said the Torah 
And the prophets, the prophets are the Nevi'im. The Nevi'im, that's the Hebrew word for prophets. And again, pfft. Now, the, the Hebrew scrolls for the prophet scrolls are not what we always think of as prophets in an English sense. It starts with Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and it goes all the way up through Malachi with those books that are deemed prophet books. But there's a third category of books in the Old Testament a collection of the Tanakh, and that's the Ketuvim. And the Ketuvim are those books that are deemed the other writings. That's what Ketuvim means, is writings. So this is those writings that are, Old, that are Old Testament Hebrew scriptures that are not Torah and are not Nevaim. They're not law and they're not prophets. This includes the biggest one. The first one is the, the Psalm scroll. But it goes and it includes what we would call First and Second Chronicles. It includes Job, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, what we will often call wisdom literature as well. So those are the divisions in a Hebrew Bible. Now, with that as an understanding, I wrote last year a devotional with a daily devotional. It was based on the Psalms. And I took a little bit of a psalm, and most of you know because you've got one, a little bit of a psalm, wrote a devotional, wrote a prayer. We've got a second edition, and I brought a box of them. If you do not have one, there's a box of them, and you can grab one at the end of class. But I'm in the process of trying to write for you guys and for my family and others another devotional book. But instead of writing one out of the Psalms like I did before, I decided out of that entire Hebrew Bible, since I am a lawyer, where should I write the devotionals from? The Torah. The lawyer ought to be writing his devotionals out of the law. I mean, there's Psalms that say, Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation night and day. Those Psalms are talking about the Torah. Oh, how love I the Torah. It is my meditation night and day. So we need to be meditating. We need to be devoting ourselves and studying the Jewish law together. And that's what I'm trying to write right now, and that's what brings us to this morning. So, uh, let's get that slide out of the way, sorry. Um, this PowerPoint has just gone haywire on me, translating between what I did. It looks so pretty on my computer, and it looks so messy up on that screen, and I apologize to you all, I'll figure that out. So, these are Torah devotionals. What we've got are short little passages out of the Torah that I've put into devotional ideas and thoughts and lessons. And that's why these are segmented. Now, here's the key. If we were to compare the Old Testament, uh, an Old Testament Torah scroll, and actually there would be five scrolls here for the Torah, but if we were to compare the Torah scrolls um, to the Bible... English Bible. An English Bible is written in a way where it's divided into books, chapters, and verses. It wasn't written that way. If you read the original letter of Paul to the Romans, or the original gospel of Matthew, 
They didn't sit there and say chapter 1, verse 1. Those were added in the Middle Ages to help people more readily find and reference passages in the Bible. It's, um, um, uh, it's, it's fascinating. So uh, the Tyndall House is a, a think tank over in Cambridge, England. And Tyndall House is about to publish their newest um, intellectual publication of sorts. It's, um, they've gone back through and they're publishing the state-of-the-art Greek New Testament. Where they've gone through all of these old Greek manuscripts to come up with the very best, most accurate Greek New Testament we can come up with. And they parceled out a couple of assignments to me. So I got to do like goofy things like they needed to make sure that Abilene was spelled right. And they figured since I was from Lubbock, Abilene is in the New Testament, that I'd be able to figure out is Abilene getting spelled right, okay? So what I would do for for the assignments I got is go through all of these old ancient manuscripts that we've got pictures of. I didn't have the actual manuscripts, but really good photos and try to figure out well, the first problem that took the longest for me, it's not seeing how does, you know, Codex Alexandrinus spell uh, uh, Epaphroditus, which was another one of my assignments, is to find that. That's, okay, I can do that. The problem is, how do you find it in the manuscript before they had all of these nice divisions of chapters and verses? Especially when one of the assignments I had was to find a Greek passage where the Greek had been overwritten by Coptic because they'd run out of paper. So somebody thought it was a really good idea just to turn it this way and just write the Coptic over the Greek. So I'm trying to turn it that way and read below the Coptic and find the passage I need to find. It was not easy. I love chapters and verses. I became a big fan of those. Now, in your Hebrew scrolls, going back all the way to the time of Jesus, because we've seen it in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they didn't have chapters and verses. But what they did have are what what you would call parasha in Hebrew. That just means portion. And so the parasha, the portions, are where they would do breaks in the columns. It's where they would use an extra bold print to start out the portions. And the Hebrew Torah, and actually other parts of the Hebrew Scriptures as well, were divided into portions. Because there was a a, a reading plan that took place, I think it was during the Babylonian captivity, which is 400, 500, 600 B.C., in that time range, they, they put in a reading plan where you would read through the whole Torah in a year. You got it? So that's reading Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy every year. Now the Orthodox, I think, still do that. I think most Reformed churches have kind of said, isn't that a little bit overboard? Can't we make it through maybe in three years? So they kind of spread it out a little bit more. But there is an amount that you read each week. So that you read through the whole Torah in a year. So what I've done in the devotional book is take the parashas, take the devotionals for each time 
that you would read each week. The Jewish year is based on a lunar calendar, so it's not exactly the same, but we can get pretty close. And so the first week, I deal with Bareshit, which is the first. All of these sections are called by their first Hebrew word. Bareshit, it means in the beginning or, or at the head, um, in the head, uh, um, in the beginning. So that's Genesis 1-1 through 6-8. And then the next parasha, the next section starts with the word Noah, which is Noah. And so that's week two. And then week three is from Lelecha, which is go forth yourself. And those are the first words. So what I've tried to do is each week mirror those weeks. Y'all with me? So that's what the book is. So with that, I want to give you some devotionals. And these aren't long. These are vignettes. But this is your food for the day. Okay? First devotion. Well, we've got Genesis. We're going to do Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So we're going to try and hit each book. At least one for each book. Genesis will start out. Genesis 32, 27 through 29 says the following. And he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. He said, your name will no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you've striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Jacob said, please tell me your name. And he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. Now, that's the passage. Let me give you this story. So, Isaac has twin sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau is born first. And when Esau is born, as he's coming out of his mom's canal, Jacob comes out holding on to his heel. And so, Jacob gets named, basically, the grasper. The one who's, who's supplanting, trying, it's like he was saying, hey, wait, I want to go first. And Jacob grows up. Well, that word also is kind of a Hebrew idiom, uh, an expression for a backstabber. It's someone who's trying to take your place. You remember the song by the OJs? They smile in your face all the time. They want to take your place. The backstabbers, backstabbers. You know, nobody remembers that song. Okay. Well, I mean, that's just like Jacob's theme song, okay? That's Jacob's theme song, man. He, he wants, no, you don't go first. I want to go first because the firstborn son gets extra blessings. So Jacob spends his life trying to basically take Esau's blessings in place. And Jacob uh, 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 tricks Esau through deceptive dealings of sorts into his birthright Isaac's getting old Isaac's about to give the blessings to the son he tells Esau this firstborn I want to give you this great blessing as my firstborn but you are my outdoorsy guy Jacob was a mama's boy he liked to stay around with mom while Esau was the outdoorsy kind and he says uh, you go out and uh, find, you know, hunt, get some wild game, make me that great barbecue you make. And then I'll give you the blessing. And mama overhears it. And so mama says to her favorite, Jacob, the backstabber, hey, your brother's about to get the blessing. I'll make the stew that'll taste really good that your dad will like. You go out and get some goat skin and put it on you so you smell like a savage goat. And if he reaches out and touches you, you feel a little rough. And Harry, 
your dad's blind. We can do this. So Esau is out hunting. Jacob goes, kills the goat. Mama makes the stew. Jacob goes in, does his best Esau imitation. Uh, Dad, uh, here I am, ready for the blessing. I brought you your food. Dad says, come a little closer. You sort of sound like Jacob. He says, uh, no, I'm Esau. Well, you smell right. Reaches out, yeah, you're Esau, rough skin, hairy. Okay, let me try the stew. Oh, this is great. Here's the blessing. Jacob gets his brother's blessing, and about that time, the brother comes back. The brother says, hey, Dad, here I am. I've got it made. I'm ready for the blessing. And it's like this, ah, moment. When they realize they were tricked. Esau's none too happy with twin brother. And decides he's going to kill him. Mama finds out. And Mama says, go back to my family. They're nearby. few days journey. Go to my family. Hide out. Your brother's going to kill you. But your uncle will take care of you. So Jacob goes. And for almost 20 years lives apart. Gets a couple of wives. Gets a bunch of kids. Gets a bunch of goats. Gets a bunch of sheep. Has pretty successful life, but it's not getting on with the in-laws too well, so it's time to head back. He's scared to death his brother's going to kill him. Hadn't seen his brother in 20 years. So he goes to all of these measures. Now, one good thing has happened to Jacob during these years. He came to know the Lord. The God of his father became his God. And you can see the changes in his life. But now he comes back and he's worried sick. And he divides his flocks and his family into two, figuring if one gets attacked, the other can get away. And the night before he's going to meet his brother, he goes off by himself. By the fords of a, a, a stream, the Jabbok. And, and he goes there, and during the night, an angel of the Lord appears to him, and they wrestle. And they're wrestling all night long. And the angel doesn't overcome Jacob, and Jacob can't overcome the angel. And then the morning's coming, and so the angel just kind of touches him on the hip. Bam! The hip disjoints, and the angel gets up. And that's the context for this passage. And so Jacob has wrestled the angel in a sense is God. He's wrestled with God all night long. And Jacob's not over to, able to overcome God, but God does not overcome Jacob. Though it's clear at the end he could have any time he wanted to. And within that framework, the angel says to Jacob, God says to Jacob... What is your name? Jacob says, I'm the backstabber. That's what his name means. That's a shame. But that's who he was. And God says to him, no longer are you going to be called the backstabber because you've wrestled with God. And you've wrestled with men. And you've lived to tell about it. You're going to be okay. 
So in the future, I'm not going to call you that. Your name's going to be Israel. Israel means God fights. You're no longer the backstabber. Now you're God fights. Could mean fighting with God. Could also mean God fighting for you. But that's what your name's going to be. Then Jacob says to him, Okay, tell me your name. I mean, come on. One way, the other way. It's like Sherry sitting here next to Tim. Hi, my name's Mark. What's your name? It's fair for her to tell me hers. Right, Sherry? That's, that's reciprocal. We don't have a reciprocal relationship with God. God says, what's your name, uh, Jacob? Not anymore. I'm changing it. Now you're Israel. Then Jacob says, Israel says, what's your name? God says, you don't get to ask the questions here, buddy brew. <laughs> Tim's word. You, you, this is not yours to ask. That's the devotional thought. God is God, and that's enough. We don't need to know everything about him. I want to know him. I want to know him as much as I can. But God's not accountable to me. I'm accountable to God. I would love to call God onto the carpet. I would love to demand, you know, but but I got to tell you, there comes a time in our lives where in our wrestling with God, we need to accept the fact that he's God and we're not. There just comes a time we've got to accept it. Doesn't mean we can't wrestle. Doesn't mean we shouldn't wrestle. Doesn't mean that we can't say, God, why are you doing this? Why are you letting this happen? Open my eyes. Give me a reason. Explain this. I mean, the Bible does it throughout. But at the end of the day, he's God. And we're not. And we need to accept that. You with me? Okay, if you slept through that, wake up. Here's another one. This is one of my favorites. This is one of my favorites. Genesis 38, 7. This is it. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked. Judah was one of the children of Jacob, Israel. So this would be Israel or Jacob's grandson, Ur. Ur was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord put him to death. That's it. You ready? Okay, I really like this one. Oh, I got to get numbers in Deuteronomy up there. Okay, here it is. Here it is in Hebrew. It doesn't have that little Judah part in the middle yet. That comes later in the sentence. In Hebrew, you're reading right to left. And you may not be able to follow the alphabet. But I want you to sort of look at the first two letters on the right. That's an ayin and a resh. It says, Er, Bechor, Yahweh. Well, you say Adonai. Excuse me, you don't pronounce the name of God. Sorry, God. Ra. Okay. Er, that's the name of the fella. Er, Bechor, Be means in, core of the eyes. In the eyes, 
of God, ra, which means evil or wicked, okay? Are you able to look at the last two letters, ignore the little dash under the bottom and the backwards comma, if you're chanting and pronouncing this stuff, that's helpful. And the same, ignore the two dots and the arrow under the bottom of the first two letters. Are you able to see something about those two letters at each end of that? They're the same. They're just flip-flopped. You see, er, which, by the way, comes from the word for blind. They named their kid... Uh, Blind. Er, in the eyes of the Lord, the way the Lord saw it, he didn't see it as er, he saw it as the opposite. He, he switched, God switched the letters around. God sees er as ra. Instead of er, it's an ra sound or an re sound. You can do either one. You follow? Because that blind fellow's name turned around as evil. And evil's who he was. So God didn't see him the way his name was being spelled. God saw him for who he truly was. God is not blind. God sees things as they are. And we can't blind God to them. The er doesn't probably mean in its root that the boy was blind, but that he would blind others. But he can't blind God. God sees. God sees for what it really is. God, if you think you're fooling God, who's the fool? It's not God. God sees it for what it really is. None of us have an ability to blind him. None of us can pretend to be something we're not and God not know the difference. Okay, let's move on to Exodus. Ah, still having trouble there. Exodus. I kind of like this one. And we're running a little short on time, so I may have to skip one um, or two. He coupled five curtains to one another. And the other five curtains he coupled to one another. And he made 50 clasps of gold and coupled the curtains one to the other with clasps so that the tabernacle was a single whole. Now you might be looking at that saying, A, what? And B, so what? Let me answer those. Let's see if I can pull up um, a picture. Do I have a picture? Ah, I'm sorry. This calls, there we go. Okay, that's a picture of the tabernacle. The tabernacle is what Israel built at God's instructions after they got released from Egypt in the captivity in Egypt and they're headed to take over the promised land. And God says, I want you to build a tabernacle. That's where you're going to do your sacrifices. That's where I'm going to meet with the people through the priests. And so he gave very specific instructions. And on the curtains, he said, you make them exactly this way. You make the hooks this way. And you clasp them and you put them all together so that they make a hole. See? So that the tabernacle is a single hole. Not 
hole like a hole in the ground. Whole as in one whole piece. All right? Why is this important? I would tell you this is also one of those passages that Jesus is thinking of when he says that the law and the prophets bear witness to me. Unlike every other primitive folk, by and large, around Israel, Israel believed you met God in one place. When Israel would start having all of their little idols and all of their little home altars and all, that was not what God told them to do. That was a disobedience. God always told Israel, there is a single whole, there's one meeting place, and you make it in a way where you remember it is one. Because God meets with us in one place. There is a single place, a single whole where God meets with us. That is the tabernacle, or the, which is a fancy word for tent. You, you with me? Now, where's the one place God really meets with us? In Jesus. So when you're reading John 1, and John says, in, where it starts out at John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14 says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is the word tent. He tented here. He tabernacled. He pitched his tent. This tabernacle, the one single whole, God meets with humanity because in one place alone. And that one place is Jesus. And it's always been prophesied to be a one-place meeting. And Israel always had a one-place meeting. When the tabernacle was gone... They kept the Ark of the Covenant, and that was the meeting place. Until Solomon builds the temple. But there was one temple, and that was the meeting place. That temple got destroyed. They rebuilt that temple. And that temple was standing when Jesus was there. There's one meeting place. Always. That's what God taught. Okay, let's keep going. Genesis, Exodus. We've got another Exodus one. Uh, uh, Israel meets... Golly, my PowerPoint's like sick today. Okay. Um, We don't have time for this one. We're going to skip it. Sorry. Nah, this is pretty good. Okay. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. See, that's the tent. One tent. All of the curtains, not even the curtains can be considered separate. They've all got to be sewn together. They've all got to be clasped together. It's got to be one. It's one tent, one tent of meeting. The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And Moses was not able to enter, filled the tabernacle, the tent. Moses was not able to enter The tent of meeting. Because the clouds settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled it. It's filled. Nobody's coming in. Okay. Mike Moriarty. You didn't leave after your announcement, did you? Where is he? Ah, there he is, Mike. So Mike and I and and a couple other guys, we were in Beverly Hills. And we were eating dinner at this restaurant in Beverly Hills. 
And it was pretty late at night. And there weren't a lot of people in the restaurant. But over about as close as Brent is to me right now, sitting all by herself at a table, was Glenn Close. Okay, so this is, I'm telling you about a close encounter we had. (laughs) So Glenn Close is there. And we're kind of like, that's Glenn Close. She's pretty close. I didn't have a comma in there, Becky. I meant she's pretty close as in proximity, not she's pretty close. Okay. Uh, uh, Got my wife over here. She looks very different in real life. I'm just saying, no. Uh, So so we've got the, the nice, attractive, you know, wonderful Glenn Close actress, actor over there. So the guy's around the table, and it's just a bunch of us men. It's kind of like, can't believe that's Glenn Close. Well, I'm going to go up and talk to her. No, I'm going to go up and talk to her. You are not. Well, neither are you. Nobody's got the guts to do anything. So I'm sitting there thinking, okay. So I just said, hey, guys, uh, how about if she comes over and meets us? They said, well, yeah, we'd meet her then. I said, okay, well, that's just what we need to do. Yeah, how are we going to do that? I said, this is easy. So I called over the waitress. I said, ma'am, are you also waiting on Glenn Close? And she said, well, I'm not allowed to comment on the identity of anybody at any table, but yes. (laughs) I said, we would like to pick up her dinner tab. And I said, when she asks for the bill, just let her know that we picked up her tab and that we don't expect her to come by. We don't expect her to say thank you. We're not, you know, we're not, uh, you know, weirdos like that. We just uh, wanted her to know that uh, we thought it was cool to be in the restaurant with her. The guys were like, you think this is going to work? I said, I got no clue. But if, it, if she doesn't come over and say thank you, then shame on her. <laughs> her mama didn't raise her right. So we're there, and about 15 minutes later, you see Glenn Close signal for the waitress, and the waitress goes over there, and you see the waitress kind of bend down, and you see Glenn Close talking to her, and the waitress kind of points at our table and all of this kind of stuff, and we're just playing it cool. And so Glenn Close gets up, walks over to our table and says, I understand I have you gentlemen to thank for my dinner. Well, he said, oh, you didn't need to come by. And, uh, <laughs> and she said, well, actually, I only had a salad. If I'd have known y'all were buying, I wouldn't have been such a cheap date. <laughs> she was so nice and kind and polite and went one by one and asked each of us our names and what we were doing. Mike was fawning all over her. I'm just joking, Melna. Mike was really good. And uh, 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 we all met her. But it was the tale of the weekend. It was kind of like, man, that was so cool. She came over. We got to meet her. We didn't look like idiots, you know, and all of this stuff. I want to tell you something. When you meet someone who's famous... It's kind of a gas. But I don't know that we can even come close to comparing what it would be like 
to be in the presence of the glory of the Lord. Someone as incredible as Moses. I mean, come on, if Moses is here, I'd even let Charlton Heston be Moses and come in. I'm going to be, the idea of being in the presence of Moses? And yet Moses isn't even able to go into the tent where not God, the glory of God is. Yes. It's, um, God is something amazing and beyond all that we can think. Never try to make God into what we want him to be. God is who God is. And it's our honor to get to see or understand even a bit of him. All right, let's uh, get through some of these PowerPoint issues for a moment. Get to Leviticus. We've got four more minutes. Um, eh, this is pretty good, but we're going to skip it. Uh, read the book. Um, uh, this is in bad. That's in bad. We're going to skip this one too. No, let's do this one because this one gets misunderstood a lot. Okay. Yeah, I mean, the picture alone makes it worth it, doesn't it? Here it is, Leviticus 6.14. This is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall offer it before the Lord. Now, it's speaking about a sacrifice where you bring grain. Offer it before the Lord in front of the altar. And one shall take from it a handful of the fine flour of the grain offering. And its oil and all the frankincense that's on the grain offering. And burn this as a memorial portion on the altar a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, some people who like to make fun of the Bible, mock the Bible, skeptics, cynics, people who don't spend time studying the Bible, just read it, trying to make the Bible what they want it to say instead of trying to understand it for what it says, look at this and say, oh, tisk tisk, such primitives writing the Bible. They thought that God wanted to smell something that smelled good. And certainly the the idols, the, the man-made gods around Israel were that way. You read uh, uh, stories and you can read about the gods buzzing around the sacrifices like flies because they, they need the aroma. But that's not what Israel's God was. That's not what Moses is saying here. We should never think that they had thought God reduced down to someone who just liked good cologne. And his cologne favorite fragrance was you the grain offering. No. No. What makes this a pleasing aroma to the Lord is the fact that it's the fine flour with the spices. When you take grain, you can grind grain and you can grind it pretty quick and you can come up with something that passes, and you can go dump that on the Lord. But to get the fine flour, you've got to really grind it. You've got to grind it and grind it and grind it and sift it and, and, and sort it and grind it and sift it and sort it. And this is cake flour. This is the really good stuff. And that's what you're giving to the Lord to be burned up. 
You don't take God the leftovers. You don't take God your half effort. You don't take God what you can do as an afterthought. And then get on to the serious stuff to take care of yourself and your family or sell. God gets the best. God gets the best that we have to offer. That's what's the pleasing aroma to God. It's not that he's got a discriminating nasal palate that can discern the difference between, ooh, that smells good, that's fine flower. No. You want what you give God to pass the smell test. That's what this is. This is the smell test. We still use it today. If something's not too good, we can say, that stinks. It was no different then. Those aren't just words we've made up. We just use them today. But I want to give to God in ways that pass the smell test. I want him to have the best. Well, I didn't have time for numbers, and it's a pity because this is a really fun one about the importance of us watching over ourselves and our families and our churches and our friends. We don't just live. We have a responsibility to watch over others. Bring the tribe of Levi near. Set them before Aaron the priest that they may minister to him. They'll keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of the meeting. You know, this is what we do. We need to take protecting ourselves and others seriously because it's an important part of life. Um, the Numbers passage about the, the manna, you know, the Israelites start grumbling because they don't, they're not happy with the manna God's given them. They've exhausted all of their recipes. They've made banana bread. They've got manna cotti. They've got, you know, every manna thing that they can come up with. And they just wanted to go back to Egypt where they had leeks and onions by the Nile. Great song, great album, Keith Green. I don't want to go back to Egypt. I want to be satisfied with what God gives me. Um, and so I at least hit now Genesis X. I didn't do one from Deuteronomy. Here's your Deuteronomy. The Lord your God's blessed you in all the works of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God's been with you. You've lacked nothing. Listen to me, please, from my heart. Every one of us go through stages of life that are wilderness. Where we feel alone, we feel not at home, we feel abandoned, we feel uneasy, we feel dry, we feel parched, we feel like we're struggling to make it, we feel like we don't have what we need, and the assurance of Scripture is that God doesn't abandon His children. Even Jesus went through a wilderness experience. It is no less true for all of us. That's part of how we handle and learn and live in this world. And when you're in that wilderness, don't ever think God's abandoned you. God's teaching you how to walk through it with his support. And that's your assurance from Deuteronomy. Thank you guys. You've been very kind to listen today. Let me bless you in the name of Jesus before we leave. Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask you to reach down in that one meeting place that we have with you. Through Jesus, the, 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 the one place, Father, we come before you in prayer with, with hearts of gratitude and appreciation and respect, uh, seeing the love that you have for us, the dedication, the devotion of the ages. 
We thank you from our hearts. We seek to serve you from our hearts, to know you for who you are, and to bring you the best of our lives. Protect my brothers and sisters hearing this message, Father. Give them the strength of your presence in the name of Jesus. Amen. See you guys next Sunday.